Hey, Captain Roger from the Salvation Army Grass Valley Corps. Grace and peace to you today and welcome to our worship and study time. You know, the center of our faith tradition is the idea of being together with our God. And though this thought sparked in the earliest days of creation and threads of the idea run throughout scripture, it's in the story of the Exodus, the telling of God's love for and redemption of his people, that we get some of our most dramatic examples of what being together with God can mean. Now, the festival that celebrates the beginning of that journey, the, the Passover, it's an annual reminder of these stories. And at the start of each Passover, there's a family meal, family meal uh, called the Seder. And at the heart of each Seder is the Megid, a retelling of the story of Israel learning how to journey with God. And that story is retold each year using questions asked by four children, or, or maybe I should say four types of children. Now, hold on to that for just a moment. Mark and Matthew, in their biographies of Jesus, each tell us how Jesus faced the religious leaders of his people in the days before his arrest. They approach him, intending to discredit him, working together in their groups and with one another to make sure that they could face down this upstart Galilean who dared to bring his nonconformist teachings right into the heart of their temple. This was their domain, after all. The leaders were sure that they could shut Jesus down and send him out of their lives forever. We are in Matthew chapter 22. We're going to start at verse 15 today. Matthew 22, verse 15. I'm going to read from the uh, New International Version 2011 edition today because uh, I think it translated this section pretty well. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed with others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? <laughs> now, this is uh, what you call a halakhic question. It's one that relates to the law. It's uh, completely by accident on the part of the askers, I'm sure. But this is the kind of question asked by the first child of the Megid. Now, the first child is said to be concerned about the observance of the law. What is right in the eyes of God? And because of their focus, this child is called the wise child. The, the question here is serious. But the two groups teaming up to use it against Jesus, they're not really interested in his answer so much as they are in being able to use his answer to convict him. See, the Pharisees we've seen before, and in this case, the leadership of the Pharisees is pulled back and they've sent their disciples instead. And there's a couple of reasons for that. But one of those is because the leaders wouldn't want to be seen publicly hanging out with the Herodians who went with them. Now, the Herodians as a group, they were politically the opposite of the Pharisees. They were supporters of the rule of the Herods and of Rome's influence over Israel's government. If Jesus said that he didn't believe the imperial tax should be paid, these are the guys who would very quickly have reported him to the authorities for advocating rebellion. 
But if Jesus said that it should be paid, then on the other hand, the Pharisees would have used that to say that Jesus was obviously opposed to Israel's independence. Just as much a traitor as the tax collectors that he was known to hang out with. Right? Look at verse 18. It says, but Jesus, <laughs> but Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Stop for just a sec here. See, at that time, Tiberius was the emperor of Rome. And uh, it was said that all the silver and gold in Rome actually belonged to him and him alone. And then all the coins that were minted during his reign, they had his face stamped on them. And on the front with his face were the words, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And on the back, there were the words Pontifex Maximus. And those were inscribed there to indicate that Tiberius was not just a god and the son of a god, but also the ultimate high priest, the maximum priest. Um, and using these coins, these Tiberius denarius, uh, it was at best distasteful to the Jewish people because of the pagan imagery and statements on there. <coughs> Excuse me. These coins were not allowed to be used in the temple. That's why there were money changers outside the temple. And um, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, in those that outer courtyard, there were money changers there who would change this pagan imaged money for imageless coins, a temple denarius. So these coins declaring one emperor to be God and another one to be the son of God and the highest religious authority in the land. See, it, when you brought them into the temple, it was seen as desecrating the temple. It was seen as insulting to the most high God, the Lord God, Yahweh. Now, Jesus apparently was not carrying one of these. Like many religious Jews, he probably didn't use this coin. But someone had one in their pocket and they were able to produce it when he asked for it. And he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. We're in verse 21 now. Then Jesus said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Whose image is on this coin? Caesar's. All right, so give back to Caesar what's made in Caesar's image. What's made in God's image needs to be given to God. Ooh. Now, Jesus never placed much, if any, value on money, frankly. We've even seen him suggest that some people should just give it away to avoid being ensnared by it. And he's pointed to it as an obstacle uh, that keeps you from entering the kingdom. And here he's pointing out that we all have a much higher duty to worry about than a piece of metal. If the image on the coin makes Caesar think that it belongs to him, then who do you think God is concerned with? What bears God's image? And so Jesus has given an answer that is a non-answer. And it's one that leaves his attackers without any obvious way to use it against him. And at the same time, somehow, that answer that he gave, in spite of being so innocuous, also points to the need for all of us to remember that we bear the image of God, and therefore, we belong to him. Not to any human declared emperor or ruler, right? It's enough to set those who asked that question kind of back on their heels. Look at verse 22. It says, when they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Now, they weren't the only ones 
trying to come up with a trap for Jesus, though, right? Remember, we, we talked about this uh, in the last couple of weeks. They're, they're kind of ganging up on him here. Verse 23, that same day, the Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the third, I'm sorry, to the second and the third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? <laughs> now, Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection from the dead. Uh, they, they thought and taught that the soul must die with the body and there is simply no, no afterlife. After all, the Torah does not explicitly say that there is, and therefore, why would we think there is? What they are approaching Jesus with here is a barut, a, a mocking question that's designed to ridicule the belief of a teacher. It's supposed to make the teacher kind of just sputter about and look foolish when they can't answer the ridiculous question. We, we talked about this kind of question recently when I discussed my friend asking if God could make a burrito that was too large for God to eat and how we answered that. You want to find that? Go look back at the podcasts, look back in the videos. You'll find that a few weeks back. Um, now, the second of the four children of the Passover story is a mocker as well. It's, it's someone who has separated himself from the rest of the community by their wayward belief. And this child is said to be as wise as the first child but they're insolent and arrogant, leading to them to be referred to as the wicked child. And, and I, I think maybe we need a little more background here. The Sadducees, what they're talking about in this marriage and leaving a wife to the next brother or whatever, um, what they're referring to is this practice called Leverite marriage. And it was a way that had been set up to preserve a family name and line. If one brother died, the next would take his place and care for the widow and work to produce an heir. And when or if that heir was born, it was said to be the child of the first brother and all the inheritance rights would go to that child, just as if he had been born before their uh, the woman's initial husband had died, right? So that child would not be the child of the father who helped create it. He would be the child of the first husband. And that family's place would then be preserved in their clan or their tribe, and their, their rights would be preserved within their family line. Based on um, the other practices and beliefs we know of about the Sadducees, they certainly had no trouble with polygamy, if it involved one man and many wives. So what they're actually arguing here is the idea that a woman being married to several men is just unbelievable to them. And they are sarcastically throwing this scenario up to ridicule the whole idea of a resurrection because it's obvious to them that no one would stand for that kind of nonsense. To which, in verse 29, Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, 
Have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Ooh, all right. Now we got a two-part response from Jesus here. All right. Jesus answers in the same mocking and sarcastic way that he was questioned. The purpose of a Leverite marriage was to provide an heir because of a death. And once that happened, the duty was ended. This was about passing on property rights, not about a regular marriage relationship. So the question the Sadducees were asking isn't really honest or valid. It's just salacious and tantalizing. It's kind of like clickbait. Um, it's there for you to, to like, ooh, look at that shiny thing. Let me poke that. But it's it's not really the the thing um, where they refer to it as uh, the man leaving his wife to his brother. That's not the way that worked. And the response that Jesus gives, it doesn't actually deny the possibility of marriage in heaven, although I've heard people say that. Um, it does seem to poke at the patriarchal nature of marriage as it existed in his day. Uh, when he says to marry and to be given in marriage, to marry was the male role and to be given in marriage was the female role in the culture of their day. And I don't want to run down that rabbit trail right now, but there's all kinds of possibilities tied up in this response that Jesus gives, all suggesting a return to the original equality of a spousal helpmate. But that's a long discussion, better suited to a, a different setting than a sermon. So we're going to move on on that one for right now, okay? But feel free to ask questions, and we can talk that through in the comments, or uh, you give me a call or swing by our live, sermon, our live services, and we will talk it to death if you want. Notice, though, how Jesus points to God's power states right out that his questioners are denying God's ability to do what God wants to do. But it's the way that they're mocking the idea of resurrection that Jesus responds to with our favorite insult. Have you not read? We've seen this come up like week after week. Jesus, it's like his, it's like his uh, shot. Bam. Have you not read? Bam. And then he quotes God speaking in the present tense about biblical patriarchs who have been long dead, making the point that they must be dead and yet present and alive. Therefore, there is a resurrection. And verse 33 says, when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching, which is a great way to say they're like standing around with their mouths open. Oh, I never thought of that. Because there's no way to argue against Jesus without making an argument that God was either mistaken or wrong about those guys he was talking about. And that would just dig the hole the Sadducees had made for themselves a little deeper, wouldn't it? To the crowd, Jesus is the victor here. And so they are giving him honor for his teaching when they're standing amazed. But we're not done yet. We're not done yet. This this seems to have shut up the Sadducees, but the leaders of the Pharisees have come up with another card to play. Verse 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, and one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, if you're at your uh, annual Seder and you're telling the story of the, uh, the uh, Passover through the children... Um, the third child that you use in your story is referred to as the simple child. 
Now, that's not meant to be an insult. His, the question that this third child asks is a straightforward question about general moral principles, which is responded to with a simple and direct answer. And this is the kind of question that was used in um, honor contests between teachers, where one would challenge another's knowledge, and then if an answer was given, the challenged could counter with their own question, and then it would go back and forth until someone couldn't answer or was, was stumped, and then the points kind of went to the, the person who asked that last question. Jesus gives a fast and traditional answer that combines Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. Uh, 37, verse 37 here in Matthew says, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, this is a good answer, and it enables him to turn immediately to his counter question. Verse 41 says, Well, the Pharisees were gathered together. Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Oh, the son of David, they replied. And he said to them, Well, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Oh, okay. I know. This doesn't sound simple, does it? Uh, let me explain the fourth child real quick here. The last child involved in explaining the story of God's people learning how to walk with God is called the one who does not know how to ask. It's long in English. It's a little shorter in Hebrew. Traditionally, this was the child who was too young to pose a question. So the father or the head of the family would pose and answer the question that opens up an understanding of a deeper truth. Jesus uses his counter question to ask and answer this question about the nature of the Messiah. When the Pharisees respond to his question by saying, well, the Messiah is David's son, Jesus points out that David himself called the Messiah Lord meaning that he must be greater than David. And then, verse 45, he says, If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? And no one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So just as Jesus told the Sadducees that their view of God's power was too small... Now he's telling the Pharisees that their understanding of God's Messiah is inadequate. There's something more. There's something deeper involved than they have allowed themselves to understand. And they find themselves unable to respond because he has taken them to something they hadn't considered before. Messiah is more than David. Messiah is more than Solomon, more than some version of something that's happened before. And both sides, Pharisees and Sadducees, having been silenced, no one dared to challenge the wisdom or teaching of Jesus any further. Now, in the next passage, when we get to it, we'll see that Jesus uses the honor advantage that he has from this to tell people that they need to open their minds to God being bigger than human parties allow him to be but we'll address that next time. 
Right now, there's a question. Why did the gospel writers bother to layer these stories in a way that evokes the four children of the Passover story? And why did I bring it up today? I, I, gotta, it, I admit, it's complicated. It can be confusing to bring stuff like this up instead of letting it remain hidden in the background like Waldo and that crowd on the beach. But here's what I think they were trying to get at and why I think it's important for us to consider it. The Megid is the story of God and his people coming to journey together in a new and unexpected way. All right. The children and the questions and the answers, these are all just part of telling that story in a way that helps everyone who hears it understand that, that together, that togetherness. We are all made up of aspects of the wise and the wicked and the simple and those who don't know how or even what to ask. At a Seder, all are welcome, all are accepted, all are invited to begin that journey with God anew. It's the same with the story of Jesus. It's the story of God and his people coming to journey together in a new and unexpected way. The leaders and the questions and the answers, they're all just part of telling that story in a way which helps everyone who hears it understand that. Especially that last bit where Jesus points to Messiah being so much more than anyone had pictured. The God who is more than we can imagine sent a Messiah who is more than we could have imagined to accomplish more than we could have imagined so that we can be more than we ever could have even hoped. So we can journey with God in a way that is more than we ever could have hoped for. Are you with me? That's what he's inviting us to. That's the kingdom Jesus keeps saying that we have a place in. That's where I want to be. That's where I want you to be. How about it? You want to join me in accepting that invitation from Jesus and seeking that life that is more, in seeking a way that we can be more involved and more together with the God who created us? It's simple. You just need to accept the invitation that Jesus has made it very plain is offered to each and every one of us, regardless of whether we believe ourselves to be worthy of that or not. Just say, yes, Lord, here I am. Show me the way. All right? Yes, Lord, here I am. Show me the way. Let's close with a uh, word of prayer today. Father, thank you so much that you are willing to confound our limited view of the way that you can or do work. God, it's so hard to accept or picture things that are outside of our own little boxes sometimes. We love to just stuff you into a box and label it God and, and know everything that goes in that box. And, and then all the things that are outside, we feel like we have control over. And the reality, Lord, is you, you don't fit in our boxes. You never have. You never will. We don't even understand the concept of a box well enough to try to put you into one. God, you are so much more than we imagine. Help us each to embrace the reality of that, the mystery of that, and to understand that your invitation to a place in your kingdom is open to everyone. 
and help everyone to accept it. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, your Son, our Savior. Amen. Hey, remember, wherever you are, wherever you're going, you have nothing to fear. Because wherever you go, God is already there. Go with God. Grace and peace to each and every one of you this week.